Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this episode on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms. If you're tuning in via YouTube, don't be cheeky. Remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Today's guest is someone is somewhat of a superstar and a legend. He actually requires no real introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He is an erudite uh, academic, writer, activist, someone with a very interesting story and a legal case to talk to us about. And that's none other than the legendary Dr. David Miller. David, Hello. welcome. How are you? Salam. Welcome. Salam. Well. You addressed me. I wore jeans for you and you rocked up in a blazer and a tie. It's always going to be the way. I'm sorry. <laughs> How's things? Fine. Uh, things are, uh, um, you know, splendid, notwithstanding the awful state of the world. Begin, there's lots for us to talk about because there's the whole personal case, the legal case that's ongoing. Mm. The background to that. Your recent trip to Turkey. Lots for us to cover. Because a lot of today's podcast is going to be around Zionism. Yeah. It's militaristic form in the occupied lands and it's nefarious ideological tentacles of influence here and across Western governments. I want to just get your thoughts on the following organisations and what you know of them. Board of Deputies. You're going to take them one at a time? Yeah, yeah. I want you to tell me about the Board of Deputies. So the Board of Deputies, of course, yeah. is a, a, an organisation with pretensions to having a democratic structure, which uh, is elected from uh, synagogues, from mainstream synagogues mainly, uh, and uh, which used to be anti-Zionist. Uh, in the 1940s, the Zionists took it over, and since then it's been pro-Zionist in favour of uh, uh, the, the establishment of a, a Jewish state in Palestine. And of course, today it's, uh, it's a fairly rabid pro-Zionist organisation. It re reports in its annual reports and accounts, which you can view online, that uh, it works closely with the Israeli Prime Minister's office, with the IDAF spokesman's office and with a whole list of other Zionist organisations. It claims to be just there to represent Jews, but of course it's there to promote uh, Israel. and th That's its function. But uh, the other thing I'd say about it, though, uh, thinking about this in terms of the what the Zionist movement is, is that this is an organisation which has some 200 of members. Mm -hmm. okay? And there are other uh, Zionist organisations which have lo lots of members, the, the Jewish Leadership Council or the Zionist Federation. And if you put all those organisations together, you have hundreds of Zionist organisations in the UK, which I think many people don't appreciate. Community Security Trust. The Community Security Trust is, of course, an organisation which first complained about me, oh, many years ago, but in terms of the story of me being sacked, they were mm -hmm. the ones who initiated the complaint back in 2019, which in 2021 saw me sacked. We'll come back to that. It's an organisation which was set up by a guy called Gerald Ronson who mm. runs a company called Rontech. They have 265 SO and BP service stations up and down the country. I don't see that on the BDS list, and it should be. Uh, and so he's a, a guy who uh, comes from a kind of uh, slightly dodgy background in the 1960s. He was the uh, money man behind this supposed anti-fascist group, which was in reality a, a, a revisionist Zionist organisation 
uh, which went on to, to form various other organisations like Searchlight, for example, and then the CST was formed in 1994. It says it's there to protect Jews from anti-Semitism, right? That's what it says it does. Of course, what it does is run point for the Israeli government and deliberately confuses people about the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in direct alliance with the, the Zionist entity uh, itself. The Jewish Chronicle. The Jewish Chronicle is, a, is um, the main Zionist newspaper in the country. There are others, but it's the main one. Uh, and it's been like that for a long time. I, I, I've been writing something on this. I haven't published it yet. But if you go back into the history, it, it was quite Zionist. And it became more kind of liberal socialist Zionist, well, labor Zionist, I suppose is the term. But more recently, it's been taken over by this kind of far right phalanx of people who saved it from going bust. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's uh, run by this guy called Robbie Gibb, mm -hmm. uh, who is the sole director of the company. There's a, a number of other financiers who, who, who bought it out from its previous owners. And Gibb is someone who has, a, has history uh, with, with the CIA. He was actually involved in the CIA operation behind the Iron Curtain in, in the Soviet Union back in the day. And uh, he's been a BBC governor and he's been in Whitehall and worked for the Tories and that kind of thing. But it's, a, it's an organisation which is set up to libel uh, the pro-Palestine movement, uh, anyone on the left who would criticise Israel. And of course, it's got the largest number of uh, libel cases it's lost, I think, of any uh, member of the uh, of IPSO, the Independent Press uh, Monitoring Organisation. So it's, a, it's there to attack anyone, Muslim, uh, non-Muslim, who uh, is interested in criticising Israel. A new organisation that's emerged, or at least they've come onto the <coughs> radar recently, and they're very active on Twitter, it's called Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. Yeah, this was set up just before um, Corbyn was elected uh, as leader of the Labour Party, uh, and it was effectively set up by by Israel. Uh, it's fu it was funded in the early days by the Jewish National Fund, which is a formal part of the Zionist movement in the UK, uh, and its its purpose is to def again to defame uh, pro-Palestine ca campaigners and to have them sat from their jobs, and it's done that you know very effectively. There are campaigns against its uh, registration at the Charity Commission, which has so far been unsuccessful. But it's a very unusual organisation in the sense that I'm not aware of any other organisations which have a, a dispensation at Companies House not to name the directors of the organisation. And, and so that's, that's you know, a, a pretty incredible uh, a level of secrecy. But as a result of our research, we found out that it's been essentially fu funded to a large degree by the Jewish National Fund. Not naming a director on Companies House, surely that would have happened through a special request of some sort. That's right, yeah. Ah, bonkers. Well, and it's the same with the Charity Commission. So the, the CST yeah. uh, is, it has a dispensation not to name its uh, trustees at the Charity Commission, but it doesn't have that dispensation at Companies House, so that it's uh, the CST support trustee is the company, and you can find out its directors from there, but the, the CEA does have that dispensation. And of course, it means that you can't hold them to account, and you can't also find out uh, the extent to which they have conflicts of interest or that they're funding each other. And so, for example, one of the directors we know is a guy called Daniel Allington, mm -hmm. who is uh, an academic, and uh, who also poses as being an independent academic commissioned by the CIA to do dodgy research, saying that everyone's anti-Semitic. <laughs> now, that's, you know, that's preposterous, and if anyone knew that, well, some of them do now, then the, the, whole, the whole basis of the organisation falls apart. Last organisation, this is one perhaps a bit less known, but uh, somewhat integrated, or at least attempts to integrate itself within the Muslim community, uh, Nisha Nisam. Nisha Nisim, of course, is, uh, is, is named after the Hebrew and the Arabic words for women. 
Uh, and of course, it's a, it, it presents itself as being for Jewish and Muslim women. And it's about people getting together and understanding each other's points of view. Interfaith and that kind of Interfaith, stuff. Interfaith, yeah. But in reality, of course, it's a Zionist in, uh, 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 operation to try and infiltrate the Muslim community and to draw the sting of the Muslim community, in particular, as a result of, uh, of the anti-war movement of the 2000s, where you know the, the Zionists and indeed the British government uh, uh, were shocked and uh, rocked, actually, by the alliance between the left and the Muslims from 2003 onwards and have devoted huge re revenues and, uh, and efforts to try and divide them and draw this thing. And this in the shame is simply one of those organisations uh, which, cl you know, which claims things about its, its origins which are simply untrue. It was birthed by the, the Board of Deputies, so you can tell it's a, it's a Zionist organisation. Let's start with your case. 2021. You were a professor at the University of Bristol. Mm. You made some comments <clears throat> with regards to Zionism, um, anti-Semitism. Uh, what were the exact comments in question <clears throat> that led to the initial firing? Well, I mean, this is a three-year story. So I started at um, Bristol. Give us some snapshots. Something. I started at Bristol in September 2018. I won't take too long. Uh, and in February 2019, I gave a lecture on Islamophobia, uh, where uh, for, I don't know, three, four minutes, and you can tell exactly how long it was because the Jewish news leaked a recording of me talking about the Zionist movement, where I talk about the role of the Zionist movement in, in, in promoting and spreading Islamophobia. Now, this is... Um, uh, research which we had carried out, especially starting off with the Henry Jackson Society, well-known Islamophobic think tank, and we'd looked at the top 13 funders that we could find evidence of, and 12 of the 13 turned out to be Zionist foundations run by Zionist families, uh, rich uh, Zionist business people. Uh, and so we said, look, there's a specific role in pushing Islamophobic ideas on the public and on government for, for the Zionists, and we, we, need to, we need to talk about this. Now, at the time, I hadn't really any idea of of what Zionism was or what the movement was, and it was only because we had this empirical finding of these people pushing Islamophobia that we started to investigate it. You're saying up until 2018, 19, you didn't understand the no, extent. No, no, we, we did the research in 2009, 10, okay. 11. So okay, up, so up yeah, to, okay, yeah, yeah. sorry. And so, so that, so as a result of that, I started investigating Zionism, and that's what got me into to bother. And so, in February 2019, I, I do this lecture, and a couple of students, uh, apparently anonymously approached the Community Security Trust to complain to the university, which rejected the complaint because they're not a student. So the CST immediately got onto the Union of Jewish Students in London, uh, the umbrella body, and they then recruited the president of the Bristol Jewish Society, which of course is a formal member of the UJS, and as a result of that, is a formal member of the Zionist movement because they're affiliated. Very coordinated. They're coordinated, yeah. And so they, they submitted this complaint. The complaint was only accepted from the, the president of the Bristol Jewish Society because she was a student not my student, never been to any of my lectures, and she admitted in the investigation she'd never even spoken to anyone who'd been to my lectures, right? So she had no idea. But So she submitted this complaint. They rejected it. Um, uh, the internal system rejected it and said there was no case to answer, that I wasn't anti-Semitic. Uh, and then she complained about that, and uh, she, was, she was trying to appeal that. And the university, but she said, oh, the, the, the problem was that they hadn't considered her complaint under the IHRA, because Bristol at that point didn't have the IHRA. So the university went back to her and said, well, we're thinking about bringing it in. So how about if you pause your complaint until we decide whether to change the rules or not? And she said, oh, yes, thank you very much. And then they lobbied for that. They changed the rules in December. Adopt the IHRA definition. Yeah. And then in January 2020, they appointed a QC, now a KC, to investigate um, the complaint under the new rules, uh, of course, which is you know completely 
a matter of, of, of not, not of natural justice. And this, this uh, QC investigated the, uh, the, the issue, took about a year for that to happen. In December that year, the, this, the report was issued, well, sorry, the report wasn't issued, the report was finished, which concluded that there wasn't a single thing I'd ever said. I mean, and they looked at lots of stuff mm -hmm. uh, that was in any way anti-Semitic. So there was no case to answer. So I was like, well, great. And the university refused to publish this, um, and I was still getting attacked. Why did they refuse to publish it? I, I, I mean, they refused to publish it, I think, because they would have been attacked more by the Zionists. To I mean, try to keep it quiet. I think that's, pro yeah, well, they were absolutely trying to keep it quiet. I don't know what was in their mind. I mean, it's very difficult to work out what was in their mind. Anyhow, so I was cleared of all charges. I was given a letter saying, you know, there's no case to answer. We've got nothing to suggest. You don't have to moderate anything you say. There's no, no requirements. Six weeks later, I go on this Labour Against the Witch Hunt political meeting Saturday afternoon, out of work, mm -hmm. talk about the uh, Zionist attack on higher education. And in the course of those comments, of course, I say, well, as some of you will know, I've been attacked and complained about, that's the words I used, mm. by the president of the Union of Jewish Students and the president of the Bristol Jewish Society, uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't even say that the complaint was manifestly hopeless, which is what the QC had said about mm. it. Um, uh, and as a result of that, saying that, that simple statement, I was, there was a massive outcry and uh, people called for me to be sacked. People, the Zionist professors in my university wrote to the university demanding I be sacked. Over a hundred members of the House of Lords and House of Commons wrote to the university demanding I be sacked. Something like 25 or 30 different Zionist organisations wrote to the university, etc, etc. Some funding agencies, some Zionist foundations which gave money to the university threatened to pull the money if they didn't sack me. Etc. So there was a huge campaign against wow. me. There was no complaint against me. No one made a formal complaint. Not a single student made a complaint. Just pressure to sack you. Just pressure to sack me. So the university unilaterally had another investigation. But this time, they, they only gave the issue about anti-Semitism to the QC, who again concluded that I hadn't said a single thing, which was anti-Semitic, etc. But they also had a, a retired professor investigate me who concluded that I had upset some students and that probably wasn't a good thing. And then they, as a result of that, they sacked me. And that was in October 2021. What's the legal case right now? So I took, uh, I took an appeal with the university, they rejected it. And then I launched, lodged uh, an employment tribunal case in 2022 sometime and it came to court uh, in on the 16th of October last year, so nine days after the launch of Al-Aqsa Flood. Right? Mm -hmm. That was really very, very uh, in interesting in terms of what happened. Uh, and so we had um, several days in court. I was in the witness box for two and a half days. The university had four witnesses. The university's witnesses uh, essentially soiled themselves in court and uh, more or less, you know, admitted that I had been wrongfully dismissed by, because they didn't do a proper investigation. They didn't properly evaluate whether they could have given me any other uh, measures apart from sacking. Uh, and, uh, and they also admitted that although they had said I was sacked for upsetting students, not because I was anti-Zionist, they also both admitted, the, the investigator and the person who sacked me, that if, effectively that that the reason I was sacked was because I had anti-Zionist views. If I'd been a Zionist and I'd said the same things to the, about the students, you wouldn't have got I wouldn't have been sacked. They, they, they admitted this in court. And so we're now at the stage of waiting for the judgment. So the, the university's witnesses made a very, very bad job of what was happening, as did the, uh, the council and the, the legal team for the university. We're waiting now for the, 
the judge and the, the panel, there are two other lay people on the panel, one a trade union rep and one a, uh, a boss's rep. Uh, and we're waiting for that judgment. It pr probably will come at the beginning of February, I would think. It's a huge milestone case. Well, it's a milestone. Because it, it, it will set a precedent either way. It's a milestone, not in the sense of whether I was wrongfully dismissed, right? It's a milestone in terms of the question of my anti-Zionist beliefs, because that's a key second element of the case. I'm saying that I was sat because I was an anti-Zionist and because I manifested the beliefs of being an anti-Zionist, which is contrary to the Equality Act of 2010, mm -hmm. where you know beliefs are protected. And beliefs are protected so long as they're, wor this is the technical language, worthy of respect in a democratic society. <laughs> and for your views to be not worthy of respect in a democratic society, the test is, are they akin to Nazism? So the university's case in the end was that my views were akin to Nazism. And that was a terrible mistake for the university because they, they couldn't establish any such thing. It was manifestly ridiculous. And so we're, we're, we're at the position where it's a test case because the, the court will have to declare whether anti-Zionist views of the sort which I advanced are protected under law, which would mean it would be illegal to sack people for being anti-Zionist. And that would be a, a precedent for everybody else. Let's look at <clears throat> the implications uh, um, for many were exposed. The whole, the whole anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, IHRA. Why is there such a, a an intentional muddling and synonymity to both from the Zionists? Why is it that they weaponize anti-Semitism uh, for any criticism against the occupying Zionist entity? Why is why has that become the case? Why is it the same thing? And why is that enshrined <clears throat> in IHRA? Who put IHRA together, by the way, David? Who put that together? I can tell you. Who put that together? <laughs> do tell. Well, the reason why they do it is because it's difficult to justify genocide. Uh, and when I say it's difficult to justify genocide, I don't mean since Al-Aqsa flood in October the 7th, I mean from the beginning. Uh, Zionism has always been a genocidal racist ideology which seeks to establish a Jewish state by specifically displacing or killing the, in, the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine. So in order to justify that in a world where there's a convention against genocide, where people think racism is a bad thing in general, they've got to find a way to undermine the idea that they're racist. And of course what they do is, they say that anyone who cr criticises them is themselves racist against the Jews. So that they have to blur the distinction between anti-Semitism, racism against the Jews, and uh, anti-Zionism, which of course is an anti-racist position. Now, where did it come from? Well, people often date it to uh, the uh, uh, Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Iban, who made a famous statement on anti-Zionism as the new anti-Semitism. I mean, he was one of the earliest ones to to, to uh, make the, to use that phrase. But they parrot that now regularly. Now that is the line that they. That's right. That, yeah. but that, so that, that was in 1972. There's a book in 1974 uh, called "The New anti published in the U.S. published by an organisation called the Anti-Defamation League, which is of course the of course. U.S. equivalent of the CST, yep. which exists to blur the distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, and they started with the notion of uh, new anti-Semitism in 74. But to be fair, they had been doing this for decades before that. And if you look at the, the uh, now de declassified FBI files on the IDL, you can see they were doing it against uh, Arab Americans in the 1940s before the creation of Israel. Wow. Right? Same, Goes back then. Back to then, right? But, so that, that is a long tradition. 
Uh, and But especially since 1967, and that's why Abbott Band does it in 72, that they've tried to, to raise this thing. But the, the newest wave of the new anti-Semitism um, it, it starts um, uh, around 2000. Uh, and they create this thing uh, called the Global Forum for Countering Anti-Semitism. It started by this guy called uh, Anatoly Sharansky. Uh, of course, Judaized and Hebrewized his name to Nathan Sharansky. He became mm. a, an ultra-settler supporter when he moved from the Soviet Union uh, to uh, Israel. And this Global Forum was dedicated to setting up the idea that there was a new anti-Semitism. So they... they as a, as a result of that, they, brought, they drew out this new definition, working definition of anti-Semitism, which they had adopted, or at least posted on the website of the European Union Monitoring Centre for uh, against xenophobia in 2002. Right? But then there was some challenge against this. People say, well, this, this is ridiculous. This is blurring together two different things. And eventually the uh, EUMC, when it became the funda fundamental rights agency of the EU, dropped it. And that, this is around about, I think, uh, 2010 or 11, sometime around that period. As a result, they didn't have anything. And so the Global Forum on Countering Antisemitism decides in around 2013 or 14 that they've got to find another place to lodge this definition. And they, the place that they find is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which, of course, adopts it in 2016, just the year after Jeremy Corbyn is elected uh, as the leader of the Labour Party in the UK. So that's the weapon. The weapon is the IHRA, which blurs together Israel and racism against the Jews, which are, of course, entirely separate things. And they, use, then, they, they then have that weapon, which they can then bludgeon trade unions and academics and uh, journalists and Muslims and anyone else who gets in the way uh, and say that they're, they're actually racist, when, of course, what's being said uh, is that uh, Israel is a racist settler state and, uh, you know, should be... Uh, constrained, some people say, or abolished as, uh, as this is a sensible position. So that, that, that's, the, that's how they did it. I mean, they, they, they produced this weapon. And then, of course, in order to bludgeon people with it, they have to have organizations on the ground. They have to have troops on the ground. CAA, you discussed earlier, mm -hmm. that's one of them. They, have, they, they created a huge number of new uh, um, pro-Israel <laughs> groups in around two, from 2014 onwards. In this country, something like 40 or 50 new uh, uh, pro-Israel groups and, and the same in, in other countries too. It happened in France and Germany and the US and it happened of course in, in the UK too. They, they create all these new organisations which then have the boots on the ground to be able to make complaints about people who have said, used the term Zio or, uh, or compared uh, uh, Netanyahu to a Nazi or all of these things that they say are anti-Semitic which are of course are not. Mm. But let's look at it in terms of uh, from a legal point of view, right? Um, the UK government's adopted IHRA. Uh, how many universities have adopted IHRA? Uh, I forget the total, but I think it's something like 50 or 60. Okay, so... so not all of them, but... Not all yeah. of them yet. Do you see more universities adopting this? Well, look, we're, we're reaching something of a, a crunch point. I mean, the, the, the UCL, I think, was a university which rejected it, which adopted it and then rejected it. And uh, some have, have not adopted it um, and we're, we're going to reach a point where it's going to be rejected by a lot of organisations because we're reaching you know the point where the accusation of anti-semitism has no power anymore and it's become a joke hasn't it David? It, well I mean it's always been a joke but it, it's increasingly being seen as a joke I mean, its power came from the people the way in which people 
uh, sort of um, genuflected before it or showed obeisance to it or were intimidated by it. And, that, and there are fewer and fewer people being intimidated now and more and more people saying, this is genocide and it's not racist to say it. Let's talk more about Zionism and how it funds and feeds and exacerbates and contributes heavily in con uh, to the global Islamophobia industry. Now, as a Muslim and as a Muslim outlet and a Muslim platform, I get that the Palestinian cause for liberation, the Palestinian struggle for freedom, it's one for people of justice, one for people of conscience, it transcends races, religions, all of that. I accept that. But for the Muslims, there is no other reason except for the guy in Indonesia, to the guy in Morocco, to the guy in Dagestan, to the guy in Tanzania, to care for the cause of Palestine, except that it has a religious significance to it. And you can see from the current uh, onslaught in Gaza, the last 102, three days, that a lot of these genocidal TikTok videos that have been coming out from IDF mm. soldiers has specifically, overtly, uh, been referencing the Muslimness of the Palestinians. Sure. Right? How has Zionism or the Zionist movement contributed towards the global Islamophobia industry? <clears throat> well, I mean, the, 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 as I said before, this is, this is how we got into this by saying, look, here's the Henry Jackson Society. It's pushing Islamophobic ideas. It's pushing these ideas about uh, Muslim extremism uh, and, uh, and the way in which uh, Muslims behave in such a way which is, which is threatening to Western values or whatever. And that's Islamophobia. And um, we discovered that they were being funded by Zionists. And so then you start to look at, at where, who the Zionists are, what they're doing, but also how far this goes back. These, this set of ideas about the, 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 the reactionary or uncivilized nature of Muslims, uh, or indeed, of course, of, of Arabs and Palestinians uh, specifically. And it goes back quite far. And of course, the, I, would say, I would make two points here. One is, one is the notion of Islamic terrorism. Now, where does the, the notion of Islamic terrorism come from? Does it come from um, uh, scholars at Cambridge or at the Sorbonne in Paris or where does it come from? And of course, if you look back at it, you find that it comes from uh, Zionist affiliated intellectuals. And one of, the, one of the earliest places it comes from is two conferences run by a, a certain person called Benjamin Netanyahu in 1979 and 1984 on terrorism. I think the, second, the second book, the volume from the second conference was called Terrorism, How the West Can Win. The first one's held in Jerusalem, the second one's held in, I think, in uh, DC. And in 1980, there's no mention of Islamic terrorism. In 1984, there's a whole panel on Islamic terrorism, which is the new threat. And of course, what's happening here is there's a move from saying the biggest threat to the West is not the Soviets anymore. It's the Islamists. It's the Muslims. No, 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 let's, let's come back to Islamists, right? It's the Muslims. Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism, they don't talk about I'm it. I'm saying, but they do this, isn't it? They would never say there's a Muslim problem. They'll, they'll, they'll oh, no, no, they did at the, t the time. Did they? they? Yeah, in, the, in that book. I mean, the, the, the guy who chaired the session is a guy called Bernard Lewis, right? Famous. Huh. Famous. Former Zionist. British intelligence officer, yeah. but, you know, out and out Zionist. And, uh, and some other people around him who were referred to as the Gang of Four, because they were all, they, each one hated Muslims more than the last yeah. Uh, and so th that, that's the origin of that. And that becomes a, a dominant thing, the idea of, of some form of, of political violence, which is specifically Muslim. It's because they have these backward ideas. And, you know, I, I studied... Um, they want a caliphate, they want well, that Sharia all, all, law. All that stuff. But they want to the, the, rule the world and, and black they, flags and all of that. And yeah? they've got beards and all that stuff. Oh, right? yeah, and so I, it was very familiar to me because I studied the conflict in the north, north of Ireland, right? Yeah. So I, it was like, oh, these Catholics, they have these funny religious practices. They've got the Republican beard. And it's all the same stuff, right? 
this is the, the Irish are bad, etc. So, so they have this stuff, right? Uh, and that, that, that specific form of Islamic terrorism is completely different to the Red Army faction or uh, the Brigata Rossi in Italy. It's totally different. It's not, you know. And then also, of course, at the same time, roughly the same time, around about the late 70s, as a result partly of uh, the Soviet uh, intervention in Afghanistan and the CIA's mm -hmm. support of, uh, of the Mujahideen there, uh, and also partly as a result of the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt, um, uh, there you have this, uh, this idea that there is something specifically Muslim about political opposition. And of course, this is, they're talking about political Islam here, and they invent the word Islamist. Now, previously, there was a word Islamism, but it meant a scholar of Islam. Right, but in, from 79 onwards, they start to, to use the term Islam, Islamist for the first time and they, they inflect the term Islamism into meaning the, the generalised threat that you get from Muslims. So it's, it's the, the Salafists are the same as the, the, as the Shia, as, as the, the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. They're all the same because they're Muslims, right? And it's a, it's a racist term. And, so you, and that, this, this again is pushed by people like Bernard Lewis. And I, I've done some research on this and, and the way in which it emerges. And you can see that it's, it's something which comes from the Zionists, but there's also a specific input from uh, French intellectuals uh, who were involved in Afghanistan, in Egypt, and to some extent in Algeria, who pushed this idea as well. And some of them were, were as it turns out from my research, uh, uh, funded and published by the CIA. So the, there was a CIA involvement, but the Zionists were, were leading this. So these are So the terms that we even think about uh, Islam in the world are terms which are tainted by their origins in Zionist political propaganda. Would it be wrong for Muslims to adopt this type of language? Uh, it seems to me yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know that some people do say that you know that there's a positive identity in, in Islamist, but it, what, essentially what it means is is that that um, all Muslims are the same, and and that uh, so that you you, you it, it crushes the differences between different sects, and so when you find uh, um, Daesh or uh, any other organisation fighting with another Muslim organisation, well, how, how do you analyse that with the term mm -hmm. Islamist? You can't. So you, it, it, you need to be specific about this, right? You know the term Islamist, uh, is there similar connotations to the term jihadist from your research? Sure. I, I mean, of course, the term jihadist in Western discourse means uh, violent Muslim, Islamist, blah, 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 all the same stuff, of course, as, as every Muslim says, you know, jihad doesn't just mean that, etc., mm. etc. And of course, it, 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 it flattens the whole, it, it puts the IRGC uh, together with Daesh as being the same, and of course, they're opposed to each other. Hmm. Resistance. I know you have certain positions and, and, and opinions on the issue of resistance. For the Muslim and for the Palestinian, most of whom are Muslim, uh, jihad al-dafa, defensive jihad, is something that's obligated to us. Sure. You have to defend your home, you sure. have to defend your property, you have to defend your family, your women, your children, your neighbours. You don't have a choice. Allah demands you to do that when it's at your doorstep. Sure. Um, how long do you think resistance against the Zionist entity is sustainable? We've had 75 years. Is it a sustainable strategy to see the end or the dismantling of the Zionist entity? And I say this because even resistance now has become a term that's becoming increasingly synonymous with support for terrorism. I say that because I sat on the show with Pierce Morgan, who tried telling me that if you use the term resistance, that means support for terrorism. I did remind him that you're neither the CPS nor the UK Law Enforcement Agency to, to determine that resistance equates to terrorism. What's your thoughts on the general 
Palestinian resistance struggle? Is it a sustainable strategy? Well, look, res resistance to occupation is a, is a right enshrined in international law. Which law? International just for, law. Just, just for our views and listeners, are there any specific laws and statutes well, that come Under to international mind? law and the Geneva Convention, if you're, if you're occupied, there's a right to resist. Are you talking about Protocol 1? The first protocol of the 1949? Yeah. Is there any other ones? Was there one in 1982 or 1983? I don't know. Okay. But it's enshrined in international law. It's enshrined in international it's, law. It's, it's enshrined in Islamic law. Sure. It's yeah, it's and actually, the, you know, the British government believes this, right? Okay. I mean, David Cameron the other day was trying to pretend that he didn't know. And so well, I, I, I'm not sure the exact terms, but, you know, the right to resistance is enshrined in international law, as, as everyone knows who, who pays any attention to these things. So, you know, if you're occupied, if the, if the Nazis invade Poland or France, it, you are, you're, you're, it's a right to resist them. And they have no right of defence. And it's exactly the same in the case of Israel. Uh, and so that's the first thing. So resistance is, is, is a right under international law. People say it's a duty uh, and uh, under uh, uh, Islamic thinking. It's a, a duty, but you know, it's clearly a duty to, to uh, many uh, groups and causes to resist if you're under occupation. What is the state would you of... Fight, would you fight if you were a Gazan? Look, I mean, I think uh, people in circumstances make choices which are difficult. And I think, you know, I've understood that since I read The Blood, the Blood of Others, a novel by Simone de Beauvoir, mm -hmm. where the French resistance cell discovers an informer, and a young informer, and they have to execute them. I mean, these are difficult choices that everyone makes under circumstances of, of uh, not of their own choosing of, of, of occupation. So, but I, what I would say about the resistance as, as, in terms of strategy, you know, look, the... The events of October the 7th showed many people, I think, for the first time or reminded those who'd forgotten, that actually the Zionist entity is fragile. It's not, it's not strong, it's fragile and it can be broken. And uh, what we've seen since then, of course, we've seen the, the mass atrocities by the Zionists, the bombing and destruction of almost all of Gaza masses of casualties but we but we haven't seen the defeat of the resistance the the Qassam brigades which is the military wing of Hamas as you know or the Al-Quds brigades of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad or indeed any of the other uh, six other factions there's at least six other factions the six none of them are prescribed under UK law the PFLP GC they are is prescribed but the PFLP is not but the PFLP is not the DFLP is not no. the, na the National Resistance Brigade etc none no. of them are prescribed no. the Janine Brigade is not prescribed no. the Lions Den is not prescribed in the West Bank doesn't mean they won't be in the months or no. years to come no, no, but, no, but, they're, but they're not prescribed groups but, and they were involved in the events of October the 7th that's right they were um, and so so what we see with that is that, is that they have the, the, the Israel has not managed to destroy the resistance in specifically in Gaza uh, that they remain strong that they are killing large numbers Numbers of uh, Israeli soldiers, uh, which numbers of which are being uh, denied and, and suppressed by Israel. Uh, Qassam Brigade's statement the other day, Abu uh, uh, Abu said um, that they had destroyed a thousand Israeli military vehicles. Now, that's probably true, and that's of course just the one front, the Gaza front. Right? And of course, there are many other fronts, which I think people are not always aware about. So of course, there's the front in the north with Hezbollah, yep. 
which of course has, has cleared the five-kilometre range from the border of all uh, IDF personnel and uh, and uh, all settlers have left as well. And, and Hezbollah have taken a measured approach and not escalated unless there's been specific escalations against them. They've shown that they can destroy, in response to the assassination by Israel of uh, Saleh al-Aruri in mm. Beirut the other day, they destroyed the Israeli's most important uh, air base, which, which uh, provides uh, air cover for the whole of the uh, Mediterranean and most of West Asia. So there's, been, there's, there's that front. Uh, and of course, there's the front in Iraq, the Islamic uh, resistance in Iraq. 23 different factions, I think, people don't understand that, which has been attacking American bases in Iraq and indeed American bases in Syria and also, of course, Israeli bases in the occupied Golan. And then, of course, we've got activities in Syria. And let's not forget, we can't forget the Ansar Allah movement in, in Yemen, who have closed the Red Sea. Uh, um, to Israeli, to Zionist uh, traffic, and now to US and UK traffic, which warranted uh, uh, airstrikes from the US and Britain and Bahrain and the Netherlands and Australia. Yeah. So we know that Western states can and do intervene. They, of course, but they, but they, they are. But the way the way that they did the intervention shows that they're scared, right? They, they know that they, you know, they know perfectly well, not just that Ansarullah have Iranian-provided weapons, but also that they have weapons that they captured from the Saudis, which, of course, most of which were made... For British or American. In America and Britain. Yeah. So they know perfectly well that, should they wish to, Ansarullah can sink large numbers of American boats. And do you think that's the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. They've got, they've got the, the weaponry to do it. And th these, are, these are floating targets. They, they, and so they, they, the Americans think these are there to project U.S. power, but actually, in the, in the modern day, with drones and everything, these are simply floating S targets. They're sitting targets, yeah. Yeah, S sitting in the sea, waiting to be hit. Mm. And can we imagine the horror of Ansarullah sinking one, two, three, four, five American boats? Now, that's why the Americans rang them up and said, hey, guys, we're about to bomb you, uh, so you, you might want to clear your bases. And that's what they did. And that's why there was five casualties only and, uh, and nothing of, of note was destroyed. The Americans say, oh, we've destroyed 30% of their capability. No, they haven't. So the, the resistance, it's called the resistance axis, is very strong. Now, when I say the resistance axis, I'm not just meaning all of these organisations together, a term which I'm giving to them. This is something which they think of themselves as being part of mm -hmm. and which is coordinated. So that in 2021, when there was an attack on Gaza, the actions of the resistance, meaning all of the factions in Gaza, uh, and indeed Hezbollah and some of the Iraqi factions, were coordinated by Hezbollah, all the Palestinian factions and the IRGC from Iran, in a, an operations room in Beirut. The, the, there is daily coordination on that basis. And Aruri, of course, was mm. in those operation rooms to, to direct the operation. So th th this is an actual functioning alliance, even if there's not formal treaties on it, which is actually stretching not just the Zionist entity, but also US imperialism. People may be, people who will be watching this, especially uh, fellow white non-Muslims, that are from your stripes and colours, it'll be like, this guy sounds like a freaking traitor. Sounds like a, it sounds, he should be tried for treason. Here they are sitting, talking about attacking US ships and British ships, and they don't seem that affected by it. What do we say to the good people of Britain and Europe in trying to explain and contextualise what's happening in the region? Look, I mean, we are, we meeting um, the British military and the British political establishment are on the wrong side in these issues. 
Uh, and, you know, the, the, it's perfectly plain that the vast majority of people in this country support the Palestinians. And that's, in, you know, ever more so as a result of the mask slipping after October the 7th. You know, that uh, I've been banging on about Zionism for a long time. And people look at me and they're like, he's maybe a bit, you know. That was maybe, only a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And he's maybe got a bit into this. And maybe maybe he's exaggerating a little bit or maybe he's, they're not as bad as he says. Maybe there's some nice Zionists. And then now they see October the 7th and they're like, oh my God, you were right. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I've had this experience. Have you had those phone calls and yeah, conversations? Yeah, I, and I've, I've spoken to many other people who've also had the same, same things of, of them being told by their friends, don't talk about this anymore. And now they're going, you were right. I, I didn't realise what what how, what are they doing, and they, and you say look they're in, that it's a it's a genocidal ideology. It was genocidal in 1948, and indeed before that when they started to do the settlements and they 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 started to execute and uh, and kill Palestinians and of course British soldiers and the blowing up of the King David Hotel. And let's remember people don't remember this that the Stern Gang and the Ergen had active cells in the UK. They invented the boot bomb. They killed uh, a guy who was, the, who was the brother of a, a British military officer by sending him a bomb in a hollowed out copy of Shakespeare's plays. They invented the book bomb. And that's, you know, that was, that was in the 1940s. People understood then, I mean, when I say people, I mean, MI5 understood then that this was a hostile uh, foreign terrorist organisation. And then when uh, Mossad penetrated the Joint Intelligence Organisation of British Intelligence in the 19, early 1950s, it's stuff documented. Yeah, it's, 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 MI5's records have been declassified, and, it, and it's, it's even in the Jewish Chronicle. <laughs> and, the, and MI5 concluded, now we understand that Israel is a hostile foreign state. And of course it is. Uh, and if, even, if, even if Israel is an ally of the U US and UK, a frenemy as the, as the, term, the term has it, they, they have also, all the way through this period, seen it as their right to subvert the US and the UK. And that's why, of course, they stole mm -hmm. the nuclear secrets from, from the US and Jonathan Pollard went to jail for it and then it was pardoned and then his recruiter from Mossad was pardoned by Donald Trump. So there's a whole story here. Why does Britain and America accept it? Why do they accept these violations? I can, because off camera, we were, I, I was telling you about how I'm having interesting conversations with those who would be traditionally pro-Israel. Uh, elements of the far right uh, who would traditionally be any, against anything brown and Muslim. But a lot of these people are waking up and they're asking the right questions. And one of the things that they, the main focus seems to be the crack that's emerging amongst the, the right is that why does a foreign country like Israel, a foreign entity like Israel have such nefarious tentacles of influence in our policy making decisions? Will that ever change, David? Well, th that crack is, is certainly something which is there. And of course, they, at the same time, some of the people on the right are saying, maybe we got the Muslims wrong. And they're not all saying that, as, as you were saying about some, some of them, but some of them are saying, maybe we got the Muslims wrong. I was in, it was in Istanbul the other day, and I, I mean, and this is a thing I've, I've recognised quite a lot recently. So the, the Russian journalist was chairing the session I, I, I did a talk at, and she gets up and she says, I'm, I'm Orthodox, and the Orthodox and the Muslims should be together. Mm. And that's, that's now a common sense on parts of the right. Yep. Yes, the Slav yeah. Slavic right and the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox Christians, but also on the right in the, in the, in the US, some of the, the Christians in the, in the US are taking similar sorts of positions. And that's kind of quite interesting and new. So people on the right appearing on pro-Palestine demonstrations, that didn't happen in the 80s, mm -hmm. right? It's happening now and that's really very interesting. But so what we see is the falling away of the ideological supports 
for Zionism. Uh, and of course, that means it's weaker and weaker. And it means that, the, the, that uh, whether it can survive is now an open question in the way it wasn't before October the 7th. What's your thoughts on the position that the Zionist entity will only cease to exist or only will realistically start dismantling, but it's intrinsically linked to the downfall of the US? Do you think those two things are linked? So the decline of the US as a global superpower, not it still is the global superpower, but there's definitely competing forces now in China and Russia and so forth. Do you think the downfall of the Zionist entity is linked to the decline or downfall of the US imperial empire? Well, of course. I mean, the, the, you, the question you asked before I didn't answer is the question about what's the role and role. why is it that British imperialism and, the, and US imperialism supports Israel? Why is it the, the Americans appear to give them carte blanche to do whatever they want? Why can't they just do their imperialism without Zionism? Why can't they do their imperialism without Israel? Because, that, you know, imperialistic aspirations, for those who can actually do it and those who have aspirations, you can do it without... I, I can't see what the need of, of Zionism and Israel is. So the argument traditionally uh, on the left and other places is that, that they, they wanted uh, an attack dog in, uh, in West Asia. And I think that's... In the heartlands of the Muslim world. I think that's true. I think that, that that's... If you look back at the history of the creation of the Zionist entity, that's what they, they thought. They, 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 what was it? Somebody said uh, a little loyal Ulster yeah. in the Middle East, right? <laughs> so it's settler colony, settler colony in Ireland, exactly the same, right? So that's part of it. But then, of course, the question is, when you have your attack dog, if it slips the leash, starts to steal your secrets, you know, starts to use your passports to assassinate people. I mean, let's remember that uh, uh, in, in two cases, uh, um, the Mossad were expelled from the UK. People perhaps forgotten. How long ago was that? 1986, Thatcher expelled the entire Mossad Bureau. Wow. Right? Because they were involved in running two Palestinian agents from Fatah to kill... Palestinian cartoonist Najee Al Ali, who did Handler, the famous cartoon, yeah, 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 of this killed by, assassinated by, by. So, so, so Thatcher expelling them was linked to the assassination. Of they, the, they assassinated this guy, Najee Al Ali, and and Thatcher expelled the entire Mossad bureau as a result. Right. And the other time, and the other time was when they, they, uh, the Mossad used uh, stolen British passports to uh, pose in tennis gear and go up on the lift and assassinate that Hamas commander in, I think, Dubai. Mm -hmm. And that, and then I think it was um, Miliband, of all people, who expelled uh, a Mossad or two Mossad officials as a result of that. So it, it can be done. And clearly there are people in the British foreign policy establishment who still understand that Israel can be a threat. So you know, this is not something of the far past. There's still there's still remnants of that inside the British foreign policy establishment, but doesn't seem to be the dominant strand uh, at this stage. So there, there we have it. You know, that it's, it is possible for Western states to act against other states. And I mean, not to not this this does relate to to, to Zionism. But let's take the example of Suez, when the French and the British conspired with the Zionists to invade Egypt. Uh, on, on, over the Suez Canal. And what happened? The Americans said to Britain, no. And Britain was gone like that. And that was the end of the preeminence of, of Britain in the world. You're talking about the Suez Canal? In 1956, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Western powers at some point realised that their their allies are not their allies or have ceased being allies and they need to be disciplined. But but at this, at this stage, we're, we're, we're facing the attack dog having sl sl slipped the leash. And the question is, where, when and where 
will the Americans withdraw support? But your, your bigger question, it was a question about the relationship between the decline of US power and, and Zionism. And of course, are, they that, linked, are they linked together? Absolutely crucially linked together. I mean, the reason that we have such a, a, a sort of unclear position about this is because of the decline of US power. Look, America and the UK have just been decisively routed in Ukraine. They went in saying, oh, the Russians are disorganised, they haven't got any equipment. As strong as ever they are. Soldiers are not loyal, we'll kill them all, Putin will be disposed. No, on the contrary. I mean, Putin has ramped up military production. The, the, the UK and the US have depleted all of their arms stocks. They haven't got enough weapons. They can't even replace them because we're in a neoliberal society where there's no uh, wartime production. So even if they wanted to, it would take years and years for them to, to rebuild their stocks. So they're in a very, very weak position. At the same time as the, this is happening, of course, there's the de-dollarization process. Even the Saudis are trading, uh, have, have gone away from trading in, in dollars, even the Saudis. Uh, and, uh, and so we have a, a the, the US economy looking much more weak. And so we have, of course, the US uh, military power declining. And, and that was what we see with the Operation Protect Prosperity, where they put together this coalition to take on Ansarella. And immediately they announced it, it, it fell apart. I mean, just mm. fell apart. They, the, the US Navy said, we haven't got enough ships. And then France and Germany, so France and Spain and Italy left the coalition. Yep. And then all they could do uh, killed 10 uh, Ansarella fighters, but all they could do was attack three speedboats. That's that's all they've done, and then the thing collapsed. And now they've done this uh, this bombing raid, these bombing raids in the US and UK, where they warn Ansarella in advance, so it just so that they won't escalate too much. So this, this shows that the US empire is you know is genuinely scared. So that was flexing. Would you say it was more flexing than anything? Yeah, that's right. Two final questions to wrap up the podcast. Both are linked, but have geographic differences in the way we'd apply them. How do you dismantle Zionism outside of the war zone? Here in the UK, here in America, here in the West, here in where there's a, more of a civilization and ideological struggle against Zionism. How do we dismantle it here? So what, what I would say is, and, and this is, a, I suppose, the, the, the main point I've been making all these years, is that Zionism is not just a something which functions inside occupied Palestine. So, of course, to, to liberate Palestine, we have to dismantle the institutions of Zionism, which means the institutions of the Zionist state, um, and replace it with the Palestinian state uh, of all its people. But of course, the Zionists in Palestine can't function, one, without US and UK support, but US support in particular, but two, without the direct support of the Zionist movement in the UK and the US and elsewhere. Now, I, I've done bits of research on this, and when you look at the, the, the details of the organisations involved, it looks like in the UK there's probably about 3,000 Zionist organisations. Right? 3,000? Uh, and, and that's a conservative estimate. Yeah, 3,000. And these organisations are every day dedicated to pro prolonging and proliferating genocide in Palestine. They're, they're raising money for it. They're inculcating students in genocidal ideology. They're sending money to the IDF. They're sending money to the settlements. All, all of this stuff, right? There's thousands of these organizations. Why do we get the feeling that British Israeli dual nationals, their loyalties are actually with Israel before anything, for many of them? Because it is many of these guys that are part of these organisations. That's right. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's not, the problem is not due loyalty. It, the problem is it's primary loyalty to, to Israel. And that, that's, that's what Zionists have, all, all, almost to a person. How can that not be seen as seditious or treacherous? Well, it can but, be. But Muslims it, it, freaking it, asking the most basic <laughs> of questions, 
We get questioned about deport, deport, deport. No, no, this is the truth, David. I'm being honest with you. I know. I you know. will get away with saying certain things. We were talking about this before filming. You were like, Daily, you weren't harsh enough in describing X, Y, Z. I said, well, you won't get a knock from Bedfordshire Police Detectives over a tweet. The point here is we are told third, fourth generation Muslims that we need to get deported for merely questioning foreign policy sure. decisions. Sure. Yet you have British-Israeli dual nationals who clearly have their interests and their loyalties misplaced or disproportionate, if not entirely, with the Zionist entity. Sure. How is that not seditious? Well, it is seditious, but it's not regarded as being seditious. That's the problem, right? But why is that conversation not even happening? Well, it's beginning to happen. Oh, well, right? yeah. you know, I mean, not enough people are seeing it. I'm seeing it regularly. Yeah. But we have, you know, just yesterday, uh, a dossier provided to the police of British ministers colluding in genocide and also, I think, nine specific uh, uh, Israeli-British dual citizens uh, who have engaged in genocide in Gaza, right? So that this is beginning to be an issue. These people should be in The Hague, all of them. And I, I don't just mean the ones who've been in the IDF, but I mean the ones who have been providing the wherewithal for them to be in the IDF. And so it, that includes, for example, the Union of Jewish Students, mm -hmm. which recruits students to, this, to the birthright tours. British Jews have no birthright to, to Palestine, none at all, and, they, and it's it's a racist ideology to say so. They also get recruited through the through the UGS, a seemingly innocent student organisation, to the Lone Soldier Program, where people are recruited directly to the IDF and to the ideas and the practice of genocide and killing Palestinians. Now, all of this should stop. So, I, so I, what I say is that that we dismantle Zionism not by, as the Zionists keep saying, dismantling individual Jews. They say, oh, it's all about violence and genocide against the Jews. Rubbish. It's mm -hmm. about dismantling. Organizations. So either these organizations cease to exist, we stop those organizations existing, or we can go through a de-Zionization process. It would be perfectly easy for the Union of Jewish Students to de-Zionize. Take out the two clauses. Mohammed well, Kurd got in trouble for using de-Zionize. Well, well, Not that we give a damn. That's right. <laughs> take, take out the two clauses in their in, in their uh, quote uh, their their constitution, which which mention being pro-Israel. And disaffiliate from the World Zionist Organization, and that that probably by itself would be enough. But that would send a a, a shattering blow through the whole Zionist movement to to say that actually we think that Zionism is a racist ideology. We're opposed to racism, and so you you have to de-Zionize, or your organizations will be shut down. And that that's of course what we we thought we were doing, or at least it was claimed was being done at the end of the Second World War. We had a denazification program. It's exactly the same, uh, and of course we discovered since then that that pro process didn't really happen with any real uh, force. Yeah. yeah. Wars the occupied lands, the region itself, they may not have to be dealing with Zionist institutions because they've literally got Zionists in the very institutions and embassies of their respective countries. To say that Egypt, Jordan, um, even Turkey to a lesser extent, some of the Gulf countries, they don't need to be dealing with these lobby groups per se because they're dealing with it in a much higher level. They've literally got officials, Mossad, undercovers embedded within their respective states. Um, how does the Muslim world deal with it? How does the neighbouring Arab countries deal with it? I'm not talking about the treacherous and complicit normalisers and rulers, but I'm talking about the people. Well, they have to be. They have to uh, reform their leaders. I mean, look, we, we have. You know, there's. A, I wanted to to, um, to mention to you um, this, the, uh, the the an interview which uh, Salah Al Haruri did uh, with um, the assassinated leader of Hamas. Yeah, with uh, Iranian television in 2017, where he says, "Look, the people who support the Palestinian resistance is the Islamic Republic of Iran." 
And people should be clear about that. They are supporting the, the, the Palestinian resistance and they are the main supporters of the Palestinian resistance. And that remains the case today. Right? What, so, what do you say to those Sunnis who haven't forgotten what's happened in Syria, though? Well, I, I, uh, I, I, I say that because that's the discomfort that we have with Iran. Sure. Okay, so, so my, 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 my best, most, most, <laughs> most kind of friendly way of putting this Go is on. to say, get over it. Look. Uh, I have a completely different understanding of what happened in Syria than you do, right? Sure. But, but you know, the main enemy, it's not Assad, it's the Zionists. And let, let's fight about Assad later if you want, right? Mm. But we don't need to fight about Assad just now, we need to fight the Zionists. They're the main enemy and their main support is US imperialism. So let's be clear, you know, we, we, we shouldn't have grudging. I'm sorry, I'm speaking as if I'm a Muslim now. <laughs> <laughs> there, shouldn't, there shouldn't be grudging alliances between Sunni and Shia or between different parts of Shiism and different parts of Sunnism. There should be wholehearted brotherly alliances to get rid of the Zionists. It's the main threat to world peace. Do you understand the caution though? Of course, of course, of course I understand Do you understand that. the caution but, and but, distrust? But we're in a different place. Look, um, Qassam all the way through this, they didn't fall out with Iran over Syria. All the way through this, Hamas in, in Qatar might, might have done so, but mm. Qassam didn't. So let, let's, you know, let's look to the Palestinian resistance. They are, they are leading the resistance. So you have the position, let's not criticize and hate on those who the resistance aren't criticizing and so is, that what you, is that what you're basically I saying? I think, look, in any, in any national liberation struggle, you, you, there has to be a certain humility before those who are at the sharp end of resistance. That's what I would say. David, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, I wish you all the best and I pray to Allah that he makes you successful in your legal case because if you were to win, it would set a precedent and it would bring a lot of relief to those who have been bullied for years and I've had to self-censor, having victims of bullying and just had difficult times, uh, whether it's students, teachers. I really, really honestly pray that your case is a successful one and I know you're under very good legal hands. David, it was a pleasure having you on, brother. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me too. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope, and foes, I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, there was a lot to go through and I guess there's a lot more to discuss and we will have uh, David back on to find out more about his case. Uh, is there anywhere that people can go to find out more about your case? Because so, they'll Google you and they'll just find all the mainstream coverage. Is there anything specific that you so can... So I, I, I would say what I should have said is that uh, the time I, I still have quite a lot of legal fees to cover. Okay. And you can find out the details in the background of my case on... And you can send me the donation on, link. On fightingfund.org. That's the, that's the link. That, we, will, we will include the link uh, in the description. I will also pin it on the comments. Brothers and sisters, this is a cause that we should support. It is a type of sadaqah jariyah. It is a type of jihad against the oppressors and the occupiers. Uh, even if the person in question is not a Muslim, he is taking a legal struggle against the occupiers and the oppressors and their proponents and their supporters in this country. So please give generously. Brothers and sisters, if you enjoyed this episode, do remember to click subscribe to the Five Plus YouTube channel, leave a comment, like this video, and you can find this episode on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.